Morocco was one of the first countries to befriend the USA. American Lucas Peters returned the favor when he made a home for himself in Tangier. Coming up, he takes us on a day trip into the old port city. You get to go through the Kasbah, the Medina. You see the souks, the markets, the liveliness of it all, of old Tangier. Canadian Nikki Solano found the tropical scenery of Costa Rica to be an irresistible change of pace from Ontario. She invites us to be amazed as well. Costa Rica is wildly biodiverse. There is so much wildlife, marine life, birds that you can find here. It's incredible. Dutch linguist Gaston Doran takes us language spotting to see how languages borrow and steal from each other to become what they are today. One of the big changes over the last century is dialects of all these languages are becoming more similar, more like each other. Let's head for wherever our words can take us in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. They each left home to explore the world and fell in love with another country in more ways than one. Lucas Peters joins us in a minute to recommend the sites in the city of Tangier, Morocco, just across the Strait of Gibraltar from Spain. And in a bit, Nikki Solano shares her enthusiasm for Costa Rica, where nature and adventure make it the top tourism draw in Central America. Plus, a linguist from the Netherlands tells us how the language barrier can actually be a fun part of your travels. In less than an hour, a ferry ride from Spain to Morocco can take you into one of the most rewarding cultural contrasts that I think you'll find anywhere. The revitalized gateway city of Tangier offers a chance to wander its aimless, knotted streets and enjoy the flavors of North Africa. And the seaport of Tangier is where the very first American consulate was established, and it's long been the muse of authors and artists. Lucas Peters has lived in Morocco since 2009. He writes the Moon Guidebooks to Morocco and runs a tour company called Journey Beyond Travel. He joins us from his home in Tangier to help us navigate our way from the Medina to the Kasbah. Lucas, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Rick. Now, you are an American traveler, and you ended up in Morocco, and you're now raising a family and writing guidebooks. How did all that happen? Well, I mean, long story short, uh, 2009, I just needed to travel. Like, I had this urge to travel to get out of the U.S. I was living in San Francisco at the time. You know, by chance, I took a gamble on Morocco. I'd never been here before. I traveled Europe a lot, so I was comfortable being very close to Europe, but it was just something different. And, you know, I was supposed to stay here a year, uh, and here we are, you know, quite a few years later than that. Tell us about your wife. How'd you meet her? So I met my wife. She was uh, also working at the university with me. Um, she did not give me the time of day for about two years. Uh, and, then, and then one day, by some miracle, she uh, we actually had a really nice conversation. Uh, and then we've been tight ever since, you know. Wow. Did you know how to speak uh, Arabic back then, or have you learned that since you got married? You know, I learned, I was learning. Um, it's, I'm still learning. I always say I'm still learning. As, as much as I maybe do know, there's still always kind of more to know. Well, not that I could be a judge, because I don't know the first word in Arabic, but you sound great in Arabic, or at least for the American tourist. Hey, when you think about going from Spain to Morocco, I love this idea that from the top of the Rock of Gibraltar, it's one of, I think it's the only place in the world where you can see two continents and two seas coming together at the same time. And what a strategic and exciting place where Islam and Christendom meet. And no wonder Tangier has such an interesting history. And then what I just love as a guidebook writer is to prepare our travelers First of all, encourage them to take that leap because a lot of people are a little bit nervous about leaving Europe for Africa. But you just show your passport, you buy a ticket, you hop on the ferry, and you're there. 
What is really important for people to remember is it may be complicated and confusing linguistically and in a, in a labyrinthine market, but you can hire a guide quite reasonably uh, for $60 or 60 euros, and that is the best $60 you could spend. Now, when somebody's getting off the boat in Tangier and they have half a day, what do you think a good local guide will show them? What are the basics for the, the quick half-day trip to Tangier? Of course, you should stay longer, but what are you going to do in half a day? Well, first of all, you're going to stay in the Kasbah and Medina, the oldest quarter of Tangier. And in there, the two things that I absolutely have to see. I would start in the Kasbah at the top. Um, the Kasbah is on top of the hill. And I would start at the Ibn Battuta Museum. Ibn Battuta, if you're not familiar with him, he is what I like to refer to as perhaps the world's greatest traveler. He's very much of the same era of Marco Polo. And I think for all of us itinerant travelers out there to be inspired by somebody who traveled the world 500 years ago and saw the things that he got to see, I think is an amazing uh, sort of moment. After that, you get to go through the Kasbah, the Medina. You see the souks, the markets, the liveliness of it all, of old Tangier. Uh, you go through the Petit Soko that is so historic. But the other thing you have to go to... What is the Petit Soko? Because oh, I know there's a Grand Soko and a Petit Soko, a big one and a little one. Yeah, the, there's the little one that's inside the Medina and the big one that's outside the Medina. And a Soko, it's just a market. It, there was like a big collection of markets that were right there in the, yeah. in, in the middle. So you go from the, the little market all the way to the American legation. And all of this is, you know, it maybe takes you an hour of walking through all this, you know, and you'll have your guide to lead you through the little alleyways and everything. And once again, you got your guide, which is yeah. really important because it's hard to follow a map. It's hard to fend off all of the people that want you to buy things. It's hard to know what's this and what's that. It's, it's hard to know what you put into your mint tea, you know. And when you've got your guide, you've got your friend, your translator. And I think you should always require that you're not just a, a victim of shopping for kickbacks. You want to have a precondition of hiring your guide. You do not take me shopping unless you want to buy, unless you want to go shopping. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's good when you are hiring a guide to lay that out when you first meet them. Like, here's the things you're most interested in. And then if you're not interested in shopping, make sure they know that. Say, hey, I don't want to see any carpet shops. I don't want to see any trinkets. I really just want to go to this museum, experience the markets, um, et cetera. Now, now, the American legation, that's kind of like a consulate, I guess. And in the whole world, it's the only time I've really found where you really got to see the American consulate. What's the deal? Yeah. So like you said, that is like the original American consulate here in uh, Morocco. And it was functioning for, I think, 150 or something years. But the, uh, now it's a legation. Um, and it functions more as a museum. But what's interesting is it is the only U.S. national monument outside of the United States. Because isn't it true Morocco is the first country to recognize us as a country? Yes, they were the first country, Morocco, to recognize the U.S. as independent from Great Britain. Wow, that is amazing. Okay, so you're walking around the market, and uh, you've got your, your famous sites to see, the Ibn Battuta Museum, the American Legation, and a few synagogues, and a few mosques, and a few churches. And then you really want to dive into the marketplace. One of my favorite tips that you gave me was uh, what I call the uh, 10 dirham snacking tip. Uh, 10 dirham is about a dollar. Can you explain that to our listeners? Because it empowers you like you can't believe. Yeah, so it is, it's one of my absolute favorite snacks to get as well. Uh, so as you're going around these old, and this isn't just Tangier, like any old market you're going to see in Morocco, you will see these vendors selling dried fruits and nuts. And the key word to know is mix. Right. Everybody understands mix. So what you can do is hold out your 10 dirham, you know, a little coin. It's about a dollar. You hand them a dollar and you just say mix. 
And then they will fill it up with walnuts, peanuts, whatever else you want. And you can do it with olives. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's olive you know, vendors. I mean, what a great thing. Tangier, Morocco is a convenient day trip from southern Spain. It's our destination right now on Travel with Rick Steves, and it's where Lucas Peters lives. He designs custom tours of the city and the rest of Morocco through his tour company, Journey Beyond Travel, and posts videos of Morocco on YouTube. Lucas is the author for the Morocco and Marrakesh guidebooks published by Moon. And he's the lead writer for Moon's Grand European Journeys, due out in February 2024. His personal website links to Instagram photos of his family's Moroccan adventures at lucasmpeters.com. Lucas, when I'm in Morocco, I'm always thinking of the cultural difference from Spain to North Africa and the Arab world and Islam. And you go to the, you know, you go to the, the bar scene, which would be cafes, because there's no alcohol sold, and it's all about tea, basically. I mean, I love those venerable old tea houses. Tell us about that tea house experience. So, yeah, so uh, Moroccan mint tea. I mean, this is, uh, this is what we drink in Morocco, you know. You'll find a lot of traditional coffee shops and such in Tangier, but mint tea is the thing. And so you have Café Hoffa, Café Baba, the Grand Café de Paris. Uh, you know, you have, you have all these other cafes you can go to um, where the thing to do is to order a mint tea, sit, people watch. But just ask for a little bit of sugar. Everybody knows because they tend to put a lot of sugar in their mint That was teas. the only question I had. If I said uh, tea, they would say, I, I would assume, because they, they asked me, do you want this or that? And I think it's with sugar or without sugar, yeah. right? Sucre, bla sucre. You know, sugar or no sugar. I spend a lot of time in tea shops. And one thing I learned to order is an extra glass because it's so hot, you can't pick it up and hold it. But you pour it into your small glass. And I looked around and a lot of guys were doing that. So you could do the second tea glass, or you could do the fingers on the top and bottom of your tea glass. And when I heard in the tea shops, this is this is fun because we're just kind of getting off on a little thing about tea shops or, or cafes, but that's how you experience a culture. It's not a bucket list of famous sites. It's an experience. You sit down in that cafe, and you hear the happy sound of dice. Yeah, you'll, you'll hear, first of all, you'll hear the dice clinking across what sounds like glass, and that's exactly what it is. And you look around, and they will be playing parcheesi, uh, they call it Parchis uh, in the local dialect here. But Parchisi is the game of the North. You'll see this played in every tea shop. I was blown away. I thought that was like shoots and ladders, you know, like that's what you finished in grade school ages ago. But no, in the cafes, all over in the parks, people are playing Parchisi. Now, traditionally, Tangier had lots of hustlers, lots of people, you know, just bugging tourists. I've noticed the government is fighting that now, and you don't find the hustlers in the street. You don't find all this, the, the pressure. Yeah, when the new king, well, I shouldn't say new anymore, but when Muhammad VI came to power uh, in the late 90s, he uh, really wanted to develop Tangier. And one of the big things we did was get rid of a lot of the hustlers. Um, not to say they're, they're all gone. You know, you'll still find some occasionally, but not nearly like what you would find 20 years ago. Um, it's it's yeah. quite a bit cleaned up as far as that goes, um, along with all the other projects he's done in, in terms of like, you know, rebuilding the, the entire seafront and, you know, putting ports in there to make it easy to go from straight from the ferry right into the Medina. You know, you just cross the street. It's right there. Well, this is we should remember that name, Mohammed VI, the, the modern king. Yeah. And he I think Tangier is one of the most changed in a positive way cities that I've ever traveled in. Yeah, you know, he so what Muhammad VI has done very well is he's understood the importance of maintaining history 
and at the same time modernizing a city and finding that balance of, you know, yeah, let's reinvigorate the Medinas and Kasbahs, let's restore them. But at the same time, why not build a new Ibn Battuta museum to celebrate the Arab world's great traveler who's from Tangier, you know? Lucas, let's cap our conversation with just what's one little intimate experience that you love to share with a guest who comes from far away to your hometown, Tangier? Well, we were talking about mint tea earlier. It's hard not to take people to Cafe Hoffa, have a great mint tea, and then walk over to the Phoenician tombs that overlook the Strait of Gibraltar right across to Spain. There's nothing maybe more magical than that, except for if you get it right at sunset. Well, you took me there just about at sunset, and I'll never forget standing on that bluff looking over at Spain. And you could almost reach out and touch it. And then I said, what are these carved-out square things in the ground on the stones I was standing on? He told me those are Phoenician tombs, right? Yeah, Phoenician tombs have been there for like 3,000 years or something. So much. Mint tea, local people out on a cheap date, sunset, Spain across the Strait of Gibraltar. And that's just a fun way to cap a day in Tangier. Lucas, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Rick. I appreciate it. Like Lucas did, our next guest also left home and made a new life for herself in another country. Canadian Nikki Solano shares what she thinks you'll also love about Costa Rica. And later in the hour, Gaston Doran explains how, even with a dictionary, a language never really stands still. He takes us language spotting to better understand the complexities of Europe. It's Travel with Rick Steves. My name is Amir Telibacilovich. I'm a journalist and a local guide in the city of Sarajevo in Bosnia, and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Ja sam Amir Talibacirović, putujem sa Rick Stevesom, inače dolazim iz Sarajeva u Bosni i Hercegovini, gdje radim kao lokalni vodič i kao novinar. In English it would be like, I'm Amir Talibacirović, I'm coming from Sarajevo in Bosnia and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Imagine escaping to a place where rainforests and cloud forests coexist where you can choose a beach on either the Pacific or the Caribbean. And a walk in the jungle can bring you face-to-face with exotic wildlife, like spider monkeys. Costa Rica is a surf destination, a biodiversity haven, and a paradise for adrenaline junkies. It's nestled between Nicaragua and Panama in the skinny part of Central America. It's a stable democracy of well-educated citizens, and it's been independent since 1847. Canadian-born tour guide and author Nikki Solano has made Costa Rica her home for the past 15 years. She joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to introduce us to the Pura Vida, the good life, the sweet life, the relaxed life in Costa Rica. Nikki, thanks for being with us. Hi, Rick. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so you're Canadian and you spend most of your time in Costa Rica, but you do go back and forth. That's a kind of a cool, dual kind of world. What is it like to toggle from Canada to Costa Rica? Yeah, well, it's, I want to say it's difficult, but it's actually quite easy. (laughs) My husband and I definitely get our fill of both. So my family is primarily in Canada. So I come, you know, I visit Canada a lot to spend some time with them. And all of my husband's family is in Costa Rica. So we're obviously there for our jobs and we're also there to spend time with them. So when we are down there, we get to live the Pura Vida life. And then when we're not, we get to get a taste of the Canadian culture, which is kind of nice. So Pura Vida, I got to admit, I didn't realize that was a big thing in Costa Rica until I started reading your, your moon guidebook to Costa Rica. Explain just in a nutshell, what is Pura Vida as it applies to Costa Rica? 
Sure. So Pura Vida in English translates to pure life. Now, a lot of people think that it's kind of the country's mantra about purity, but I would actually beg to differ. It's not really about purity at all. It's more about simplicity, like having an appreciation for the small things in life. So it's just about kind of living life in a relaxed way, working hard, but not stressing too much about it and making time for friends and family. And maybe people who live in Canada or the United States whose uh, lives would not be described that way can find Costa Rica (laughs) a particularly nice vacation just because it's a needed break. That is a huge draw to Costa Rica. So if you've been here once before, you kind of absorb some of that Puerto Vida. As soon as you get back home, you're planning your return trip so that you can get a little bit more of it. I've been to Costa Rica one time, and I went on a on a great vacation. An expert in Costa Rica just put it together for me. I was so pura vida, I swear I got <laughs> home, and I didn't even know where I went. You showed me a map of Costa Rica. I wouldn't know if I was on the east or the west or the north or the south. It was so pura vida, and it's like nothing I've ever experienced in my travels. You know, I feel like you've just described my marriage, Rick, <laughs> because... <laughs> I was not a Pura Vida type person at all 16 years ago before I came to Costa Rica for the first time. I was working a very busy job. I loved it, but I was just kind of buried in it. And I went on vacation to Costa Rica, met my husband. You met him on a river rafting expedition, as I understand. Yeah. So I, when I was planning my vacation, I walked into a travel agent's office and I said, I don't know where I want to go. You tell me where I should go. And she threw this magazine at me and I flipped through it and saw a picture of a whitewater rafting tour. And so I went back and said, I want to do that. So it ended up being a backpacking trip through Central America. Uh I took the whitewater rafting trip, which was in Costa Rica, and my husband was a rafting guide. So we met and I had never dated somebody from a different country before. He hadn't as well. And we just communicated and kept in touch. And within, I'd say, about eight months to a year, I was living full-time in Costa Rica, and the rest is history. And that was 15 years ago or something like that. Yeah, 16 years ago now. And now you're the, you know, we've got the same publisher. You write Moon Guidebooks, and you've written the Costa Rica uh, Guidebook for Moon and also a a different approach, which is the best of Costa Rica, how to make the most out of a five- to seven-day trip. You know, Costa Rica to me is unique in Central America. I've spent a lot of time in Nicaragua and El Salvador on political kind of trips, and uh, Costa Rica seems like a world apart. I mean, just a few miles away is Honduras, the murder capital of the world, you know, and then you got all this heartache going on in Guatemala. How does Costa Rica end up being the Switzerland of, of Central America? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different facets at play. But the one thing I keep coming back to is the fact that there's no military. So the government takes all that money that they would normally channel into a military and they've flowed it through to other avenues. So education's one, education system's really great. Healthcare is another one. There's free healthcare. And obviously it has its challenges. It's not a perfect system. Right. But so all this money that would normally be going into the military is being fed to the locals through these other avenues. So I think that kind of down the line has translated to, you know, better education opportunities, work opportunities, just better lifestyle overall. It offers an adrenaline kick for surfers and zipline fans, and it's a haven for viewing tropical plants and wildlife from two sea coasts and into a cloud forest among volcanic mountains. Nikki Solano is our guide to Costa Rica right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Nikki leads custom tours and writes the Costa Rica guidebooks published by Moon. She and her husband, Ricky, also run a travel blog with trip planning advice, do's and don'ts, and safety tips for Costa Rica. It's at costaricatravelblog.com. 
when we think about Central America and when we think about Costa Rica, I would say uh, stability and safety has got to be a concern. And when I think about Costa Rica, I think about a lush environment, I think about stability, and I think about safety. Yeah, I mean, I've always felt safe in Costa Rica, even as a solo traveler. Sometimes, you know, I'm on my own out there without my husband around. Yeah, I've never been too concerned. I work with a lot of like solo travelers as well who reach out to me asking if Costa Rica is a safe place to visit. I don't hesitate to say yes. I mean, obviously, there are there are things that you can do to practice safe travel. Right. You know, common sense is a big part of it. But I wouldn't be fearful if I was a traveler coming to Costa Rica for the first time. And in, in most of the Central American countries, I think the most dangerous place is generally the biggest city. And uh, you don't even hang out in the big city in Costa Rica. People go to San Jose as a springboard to get out into the into the countryside or down to the beach, I think. So, um, yeah. first of all, a lot of us don't really have a sense of Costa Rica. Can you very quickly give us the lay of the land, uh, the red tape, uh, do you have to have a visa, what's the language, what's the, the cost, what concerns, what's your nutshell education for people dreaming about a trip to Latin America and they want to go to Costa Rica? Wow, that's hard to put that in a nutshell, Rick. <laughs> um, okay, so we'll start with um, visas. So you do not need a visa if you are from Canada or the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, most European nations don't need one as well. There is a list of a few other nations that do require one. But basically for Americans, you just fly in with your passport. Absolutely. And yep. you have uh, Costa Rican money, so you have ATMs just like anywhere. You know what? American dollar is widely accepted. English is spoken widely. So you don't even really need to practice the language or you know use currency exchange to buy the local colones. It's very easy. You just buy a plane ticket, you know, fly down, use your money, and go. I have a good guidebook. I, I think I can name one. And what? <laughs> uh, what about the climate? I've had my experience in Central America where it's either high altitude and hot and nice or really muggy and buggy on the coast. What's the concerns about climate? And there doesn't seem to be a lot of difference over the course of the year in the climate. No, I mean, Costa Rica has 12 different life zones. And so you ha- you get a lot of little microclimates. So it really depends on where in the country you go. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I mean, temperatures are roughly the same. They kind of average, I'd say maybe 75 in cooler places, upwards of maybe 85 in the really hot zones. But they kind of mm-hmm. stick to that range year round. Um, obviously, up in mountainous destinations, it gets a bit cooler and cloudy. That's where you find the cloud forest. Mm-hmm. So you'll get kind of a mistier climate up there. Down by the coast, you can get a lot of humidity. It can get a little buggy, especially with all the national parks and reserves around there. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's a mix. It really depends on where you go, determines what you find. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Nikki Solano, and she's taking us into the heart of Central America to Pura Vida country, Costa Rica. Nikki's written several moon guidebooks, and she's written two on Costa Rica. She leads tours around the place uh, that she's so proud to call home. You can find more about Nikki and her work at her website, and that is NikkiSolano.com. And Nikki is with two Ks, N-I-K-K-I. Hey, Nikki, in your book, you listed 10 top experiences. And I just think it'd be fun to go through these really quickly. In some countries, I, I do a geographical approach. But when I think about Costa Rica, it's more important to think of what you want to do and let that drive where you're going to go. So let's just talk about these top 10. And I'm just going to tick through them and you can just kind of explain what you got in mind. First of all, what an opportunity to, to encounter wildlife. I'll never forget walking through the forest under under monkeys, swinging from the branches above me, seeing incredible birds. And then for me, a highlight was taking a night tour of the bugs. 
And that was, I'll never forget that. They all shine at night and there, and you walk through the forest and you see these little beady eyeballs looking at you and you have an expert giving you the, the, the blow by blow. It's a good example of how rich the natural situation is. Talk a bit about the wildlife you can encounter. I mean, Costa Rica is wildly biodiverse. There is so much wildlife, marine life, birds that you can find here. It's incredible. And the best thing about the wildlife in Costa Rica is that you don't have to do much to find it. Like you said, it just kind of is right there. It's so easy to immerse yourself in and you don't have to take, you know, these multi-day treks to the heart of the jungle just to see something. Sometimes it's as simple as, you know, heading to your hotel's pool and there's an iguana waiting for you right there or just strolling across a little pathway someplace and there happens to be a sloth kind of coming down a tree right beside you so you don't even really need to know where to look or what you're even looking for it will find you we were uh, i was just hanging out on the beach and we decided to take a little stroll into the jungle or whatever you'd call it and there was all sorts of wildlife and i just thought this is really quite unique a big uh, memory for me also was the zip line it seems costa rica is really into zip lines and you put that in your top 10 experiences yeah i mean zip lines is one of those activities that you want to do the first time you go to costa rica there's a lot of great off the beaten path experiences you can have but i don't know if your first trip to costa rica is complete without a zip line tour it's just an, a very thrilling adrenaline inducing experience you can have and it's also a great way to see the ecosystem that you zip line in so if you do it in the rainforest you get to check out the rainforest landscape or if you do it in the cloud forest you can zip line through the clouds which is pretty cool too some image of a zip line is you take one long screaming trip. But my experience on a zip line was it was like leapfrogging from tree to tree on these zip lines, keeping your altitude, and you are up you're getting a perspective of the rich rainforest environment from a high perspective. Yeah, that's right. Most uh, they're also called canopy tours, the zip line tours. Oh, okay, yeah. And and that's just because you're zip lining through the treetop canopy. So canopy tours is a nickname that we've given to them. Usually they range about 10 to 15 cables. So it's it's definitely not that one thrilling right. zip line. It's it's more of a tour around the forest. I'm glad they did because I was really nervous <laughs> on the first couple and then I got good at it. And by the end it was like, yahoo! <laughs> <laughs> they always put the small cables at the, at the front just so you can That's get a good. taste of it. <laughs> um, and then another, you just mentioned a rainforest or a cloud forest. Um, hiking through the rainforest and cloud forest is on your list. What's the difference between a rainforest and a cloud forest? Yeah, so scientifically, there's a lot of differences, but really what I like to tell people, because I get this question a lot, should I go to the rainforest or should I go to the cloud forest? And the difference really comes down to the atmosphere that you'll feel at both. So the rainforest is at a lower elevation. It's typically quite hot. The forest might feel a little bit more open, whereas at the cloud forest, you're at a higher elevation. So the temperature will feel cooler. It'll feel quite misty. The air will feel a little dense. It almost has a kind of a mysterious sort of eerie vibe. So definitely look out for the the different types of atmosphere that you can find in each. Nikki, as you do your work, as you update your guidebooks, and clearly by looking through this, you love Costa Rica and you (laughs) know it so well, and you care about the information, I would imagine a decision for a traveler is, I mean, you're crazy to go there without a guidebook. So there's lots of guidebooks (laughs) to Costa Rica, and you write the moon guidebook. But you could splurge for local guides. You can do things with the help of an expert, a local person who you hire and they show you around. To what degree should that be part of your experience? A hundred (laughs) percent. So I know it can add a significant cost to the trip, but I would say if if you're planning on coming to Costa Rica, 
budget for some private guides. So, or even not private guides, just guides who run group tours that you could join in yeah, on. Yeah, because a group tour is a way to share the cost of a, of a private Absolutely. guide. And everywhere you go, there's going to be groups that teach you how to surf, that take you on a bug walk after dinner, mm-hmm. uh, to take you through the monkey forest or, or whatever, take you on zip lines. So you, you have that option. When I was in Cuba for, I think it was $50 a day, maybe it was $100 a day, we had our own private guide all day long. If I wanted to just hire some independent contractor down there to be my guide for for a day, just ballpark, are there people that just say, yes, I can be hired by the day and I cost this much? Yes, there are. Now, they usually give the rates per activity. So, for example, if there was a particular national park you wanted to visit, you would hire that guide for a couple hours to tour that park. Mm -hmm. So they don't do it per day as much. I would say if you were touring a popular area and it was only for a couple of hours, I would say maybe budget $50. Yeah, so maybe, that's, maybe that's kind of my point. I just, I just mm. like it to be straight because I've got a family of four. $100 is a lot of money. But when we're on vacation with four people, that's 25 bucks a day per person to have a right. local friend who can get you in touch with those monkeys and to explain to you about these wild plants you're walking around and so on. I think it's a luxury, and I would think that's a huge advantage for a traveler. Just we got a couple minutes left, and I I just want to take a couple more experiences because I was intrigued by the floating safari. What is that? (laughs) Safari float tours are kind of like a whitewater rafting tour, but without the rapids. So you run this tour on a river, usually a a slow-moving river in an inflatable raft and the goal is to see wildlife so you go with a guide who leads the rafting tour down this river and you most often will see monkeys sometimes if you're lucky you might see sloths a whole host of birds some iguanas and maybe even a crocodile or two nice what an experience and nikki finally one of my favorite memories in costa rica was being in a if i remember correctly like a boutique luxury little hotel that was kind of like a luxury treehouse and it was off the Mm -hmm. grid and we had to fly in and then they met us and they took us to this place and it was wonderful food and I was living in a garden and (laughs) there was graceful animals around. It was like a wonderland. When you research your book, The Moon Guide to Costa Rica, is there an off the grid luxury sort of experience that you really are so happy to to list and, and encourage people to take advantage of? Yeah, so if you're looking for that type of experience, I'd highly recommend checking out the Osa Peninsula. It's a small peninsula on the southeastern corner of the country. And the thing about the Osa Peninsula is that it is quite remote. And most people get there by taking a boat, so there's not a lot of cars in the area. And there you will find a ton of off-the-grid kind of eco-lodges, some treehouse-type accommodations, where you will not find yourself around a lot of people except for wildlife. You'll find yourself immersed in a lot of wildlife, a lot of jungle, and some peace and quiet. Wow. Nikki Solano, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Costa Rica is one of those places you can just dream about or you can get it on an airplane and go there. Let's close it out with, I'd like this Pura Vida idea. It's almost like a word. It's almost like a aloha or hola <laughs> or whatever. Tell us how we'd use that word when we're in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Sure, so you can say Pura Vida in response to pretty much anything, as long as what you're responding to is something positive. So if somebody says, hey, how are you? You can say Pura Vida. Or if they say, oh, you know, I'll see you next weekend. You say, okay, Pura Vida. Or if they ask you, hey, how was your zipline tour? You can say, Pura Vida. Well, if somebody asks me, hey, Rick, how was your interview with Nikki Solano, who wrote that moon guidebook to Costa Rica? I'd say, Pura Vida. Perfect, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. 
the history of Europe lives in the words you speak every day. Up next, we'll hear how to turn the language barrier into an invitation. A Dutch linguist shares tales with us of the historical quirks and personalities of dozens of European languages. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. Growing up speaking the dialect of Limburg, that's where the Netherlands meets Belgium and Germany, it's no surprise that Gaston Doren picked up a knack for what he calls language spotting. He's a linguist and journalist, and his book Lingo features amusing tales from five dozen languages, languages that define the nations of Europe. Gaston joins us now from studios in Hilversum in Holland. Gaston, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. So when you say language spotting, what do you mean exactly by that? What I mean is that when I'm abroad or in a different language area, I will always be on the lookout for differences, for interesting things that I hear, that I see. So what was, what's a good example of something fun you discovered as you were collecting ideas for your book? Something, a little fun insight into the culture we might learn just by the way people uh, put their words together. Well, one thing that struck me is that uh, in Italian, for instance, it struck me that I use this enormous number of diminutive, that is, words that refer to small things, right? Yeah. Like donnina, that would be a small woman, uh, literally. But when I studied that a bit, when I looked into it, I discovered that what I really mean is a cute woman or a woman they do not take so seriously or a pretty woman or whatever. And it turned out they have very many of these diminutives, many more than, for instance, in my own language. In Italy, they just if somebody is just over the top in general, they nickname that person Issimo. They're just so Issimo. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's yeah. fun. Well, what's the news? If you looked at, as a linguist, if you looked at uh, Europe this century, what's the news about languages and how they evolve in Europe these days? One of the big changes over the last, well, century, let's say, is the disappearance, not so much the disappearance, but the leveling off of dialects, dialects of all these languages are becoming more similar, more like each other, mm -hmm. and more so in some countries than in others. For instance, in, in Denmark, there are hardly any dialects left, whereas in Britain, they're still sort of alive and kicking. Uh, but over all of Europe, that's, that's a tendency, a trend. But now, wouldn't that be a, a national decision? I understand in Britain, they make a point to still have the dialects on the evening news, for instance. So in each region, you'd have the local dialect alive in the media. Yeah, correct. And it's even more extreme in Norway, where everybody at any occasion will speak the local dialect, even when uh, mm. doing a, a program like this, like we're doing now. It is partly policy, but of course, before the 20th century, there was no policy needed because dialects were just there. They were not disappearing. Right. They were yeah. very much alive. When you think about Europe, I think of it as a family of languages. And you've got Slavic languages, and you've got uh, Romance languages, and you've got Germanic languages. If you were going to draw or create a, a language tree of European languages, tell us what it would look like. Well, the three families that you mentioned would definitely be three very major branches of the big, big tree called Indo-European. I mean, Romance and Germanic and uh, Slavic are all Indo-European languages. There are some smaller branches too, like Greek and Albanian and Armenian, for instance, but they're very minor. And then there are some unrelated, uh, what should I call them, bushes maybe <laughs> on the side, like the family to which Finnish and Hungarian uh, belong, called Uralic. So these would be just apart from the tree altogether. That's correct, yes. Yeah. Now, there's a couple of little languages that I've encountered. There's a tiny language in Switzerland and a tiny language in the north of Italy that I understand are directly connected with Latin. Can you describe those two languages? Yes, the one in Switzerland is called Romance, and it, it is small and shrinking, but 
it is one of the national languages of Switzerland. So you will, you will even find the language on, you know, like banknotes. There is also a related language, as you say, in the north of Italy. There are actually two. One is Ladino. But just by the name Ladino, is it my images? Both of these would just be a little bit of a anomaly where the ancient Latin actually burrowed itself into the mountains and it didn't <laughs> go with the mainstream as the modern languages develop. But what, what is it about those languages? Because they are related to Latin, aren't they? Yeah, but I must disappoint you a bit. Okay. In the in the sense that they are not closer related to language uh, to Latin, sorry, than let's say Italian would be. It's just that they are very different from Italian and very different from Spanish, etc. And because they are spoken in these small valleys, these isolated valleys, they have never developed into a large language. They've remained very much. They've kept themselves to themselves, so to speak. So a lot of that is determined by the ruggedness of the of the geography, I would imagine. Switzerland is a small country with four languages. If it was one big flat plain, would it have four languages? Well, I'm not sure about Switzerland, but a good example is Slovenia to the east, which has one language, Slovene, but has a tremendous amount of dialects, which apparently are very, very different from one mm. another. Whereas in Russia, which is large and flat, I mean, that's a huge country, but the language differences, I mean, the dialect differences in mm. Russia are very limited. People from the extreme west can easily chat with people from the ah, extreme okay. east. No problem. So the weather blows through and the uniform linguistics blow through. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Gaston Doran, and his book is Lingo, Around Europe in 60 Languages. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Jennifer's calling in in San Francisco. Yes, hi. I just did want to mention that in light of the conversation, the dialogue about Ladino, that that is also the language that is spoken still today by the Sephardic Jews who were forced out during uh, the Spanish Inquisition. So that language has its own very rich, uh, very, very intense history. Hmm. And my question for today's guest is, has he ever heard the type of English spoken in the Netherlands, which is still today referred to, much like the jump rope game played by children, as Double Dutch. Gaston, do you know Double Dutch has a dialect? Frankly, I am a bit baffled there. What's your definition, Jennifer, of Double Dutch? Well, it, it's the way that even the Dutch themselves, in fact, refer to the kind of English they speak when they think they're speaking English, but it isn't quite correct, you know? And, ah, and indeed, okay. it's often unintelligible, so it's called, it's called Double Dutch, meaning it's they think it's English, but it's really another version of, of Dutch. Okay. Ah. Nowadays, usually say when we speak bad English is coal Dutch, as in, you know, the coal you burn in the... Uh... Why, why would it be called coal, coal Dutch? What is the origin of that phrase? I think it was because workers in the harbor who would load and unload coal would speak that sort of Dutch with the captains of the ships, something like that. That would, mm -hmm. that would make sense. But if I may add something about Ladino... Because there is a bit of a mix-up in that there are, very confusingly, two languages called Ladino. And one yeah. is, as Jennifer says, uh, spoken by uh, Sephardic Jews, and the other is spoken in the north of Italy. But they are not, well, they are related in the sense that they're both Romance languages, but they're not uh, mutually intelligible. Right, right. Hey, Jennifer, thanks for your call. Thank you. You bet. Mercedes emails us in New York City, and Mercedes says, What's the latest theory on the origins and the linguistic roots of the Basque language? You know, Basque is just this odd, unrelated language lodged in between the Spanish and the French speakers where Spain and France hit the Atlantic. How did that land up there? Well, what we do know for a fact is that in Roman times, so about the year one, let's say, or even earlier than that, a closely related language was spoken there in that area. So it is indeed very old. 
And it is assumed that Basque, or you know, the ancestor of Basque, was already spoken before the Indo-Europeans arrived, which is about four or five thousand years ago. But obviously, we don't have any any written records from those days, so it is a bit of a mystery. It it might well be the language spoken ever since anatomically modern man and woman arrived in Europe. Uh, we just don't know. So I had this image of tribes being pushed around. There's bully tribes and there's weak tribes, and they, they roam around Europe before there were fixed borders, and the Magyars settled in Hungary, and today they speak a language unrelated to the, the tribes around them and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this case, the Basque were already there, and, and people just settled around them, but this was if there was an indigenous language of Europe, that might have been one of them? Correct. You mentioned mountains earlier on and, and valleys. Well, nowadays they mostly live in valleys, and that's where they were sort of safe from the intruding uh, Romance speakers, the French and the Spaniards, and well, mm. before that, the Romans themselves. Are the small languages growing, or are they shrinking, or are they just kind of maintaining? When by small you mean minority languages, so not national languages, they're under threat everywhere, I think, because people are tempted to speak the national language because it will, it will get them further. I mean, I'm a case in point. I, I grew up with this uh, Limburgish that you mentioned at the beginning. Uh, but at school, I learn, I speak Dutch, I have to speak Dutch. And if I want to get places in Holland, I need Dutch. And if I want to get places in the world, I need English. Mm-hmm. So that's the same pressure for everybody everywhere. But when you mean small national languages, such as Estonian, let's say, which has only just over a million speakers, they're pretty safe. Hmm. I mean, Estonians can lead their daily lives in Estonian, and they can even read European Union documents in Estonian. And I'm sure there are lots of websites in Estonian. <laughs> What's the European Union government take on protecting small languages? Do they do anything to help defend these little languages? And even the regional languages, rather than the national languages, are they concerned about the, the survival? They are. They tend to be rather protective of small languages. Well, one thing that you probably know is that Europe has at the moment 24 official languages, which are the official languages of all of the member states. And some regional languages, such as Welsh in in the United Kingdom, also have a certain status, though not quite the same high status. And there's a commissioner for the protection of smaller languages. So Hmm. they consider it part, I think, of the cultural policy protection of heritage, cultural heritage, all of that, which I applaud. Yes, I think that's very important, Gaston. And in your mind, are there some critical tools that help a language survive, like to have a newspaper or radio or a university? Uh, When does a small language become fatally small and it's doomed to disappear within a couple generations? Well, the, the last step, obviously, is when parents stop transferring it to their children when they think, nah, I will not uh, speak this language to my children, will not get them anywhere, I will just speak a bigger language. Yeah. But that's a, that's a last step, and I think you were referring to an earlier stage. Um, this is a personal view. I mean, this is what I'm going to say now. But there's a lot of discussion about this. Something that worries me is that in Holland here, in education, even at a young age, English is becoming more and more important. And while I want everybody to speak good English. I fear that uh, students and young children will not even learn the Dutch words for certain scientific Mm. concepts, for instance. Mm. I mean, they will end up saying oxygen instead of zuurstof. Well, now, this may not be a great loss in the grand scheme of things, but as somebody who who cherishes this language, I, I do worry a bit about that. I've often wondered that myself because I fly into the airport at Schiphol near Amsterdam, and I've noticed in the last decade the signs have gone from Dutch and English, in some cases, to only English in the airport, and they don't even have the You're Dutch signs. You're absolutely right. Have you noticed that? 
Oh, yes. I, I noticed that a lot. It's uh, a huge step. Yeah. Earlier this year, I was in Valencia in, uh, in eastern Spain, where they speak something that they call Valencian, but that most people consider Catalan. Mm-hmm. And on their airport signs, it would be Catalan first, Spanish second, and English third. Catalan would be on top. And I think that's a powerful symbol. Oh, yeah. When I go to an ATM machine in Barcelona, you see four Spanish languages, Catalan, Espanol, Galician, and Basque. Ah, okay. I've, I've even been in a Subway sandwich shop in Madrid where the languages are in four languages, and they're the Spanish languages, so there must be some interest in keeping those languages going because uh, I would imagine people could order a sandwich in, in Spanish. But I'm sure they could, But, yes. you know, you, you notice a, a, an evolution on the other hand in Europe where menus now do not have the top four languages. They'll have the local language and English. I think in the last generation, mm-hmm. English has pretty much become the go-to language when you have an alternative. Well, except in New York, of course, where everything is English and Spanish now, I think. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking lingo. That's the book. Gaston Doran is the specialist in languages. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Carol's calling from Florida. Carol, thanks for your call. Yes, I was wondering, what is the most offensive thing that Americans do when we try to communicate with local people? <laughs> right. You must have a whole chapter on that. <laughs> I think I've been guilty of some things, and I'm, I'm not sure what, though. I'm not so sure. I mean, Americans tend to be so direct and talkative and charming that you cannot really uh, hold anything against them. Um, what may offend some people, though not in Holland, is assuming that the other person will speak English, even though you haven't checked. Uh, I mean, that would probably be a problem in, let's say, France or Croatia or Spain uh, I'm not sure if it's offensive, but it's awkward. You know, Gaston, I have that interesting uh, little struggle myself because I don't want to be rude, especially in the Netherlands where any educated person will speak English. I still ask, do you speak English? When you hear that, do you find that to be polite or do you find that just to be nonsense? Like, of course I speak English, I'm educated. It's polite. It's like asking somebody... Can I ask you a question? I mean, that's also a nonsensical thing, yeah. because when you do <laughs> you that, just you've did. just done it. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's polite. That's good. I like that. For me, one of the most offensive things in my ear is when people are in Italy and they speak Spanish to Italians because they feel, for some <laughs> reason, the Italians will understand that one, or, when, or vice versa, when you're in Spain and you speak Italian. It's just like, it's not English, so they've got to understand it. Yeah, the perfect. other day I was in Rome and I heard Spaniards and Italians actually speaking English to each other, and that surprised me. I, I assumed that they would try and mix oh. their own languages, but they didn't. Well, that's, that's, sort of the, that's what happens now when, you know, when, when two people from two small languages meet, they communicate in English. Carol, thanks for <laughs> your call. Thank Sorry, you. are you going to claim that Spanish is a small language? <laughs> oh, no, yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's a very good point. Spanish is far from a small language. Gaston Doran is a linguist based in the famously multilingual Netherlands. He wrote Lingo to explore the cultural insights found in amusing tales of dozens of European languages. Since our conversation, he's written a follow-up book called Babel. It's about the evolution of the 20 most spoken languages on Earth. Gaston explains what a language writer does at gastondorn.com. Gaston, when you think about English, how it settled in Europe and, and how it evolved, in your book you talk about how Danish helped lay the foundation for English. Uh, what's the brief history of English, the language that we speak? Oh, the briefest history is in the 5th century, the people from northern Germany, the Angles and the Saxons, moved to Britain. I mean, that's a well-known story, right? Right. Uh, the Celtic people who used to be there and who will remain there are uh, driven to the West or they will just adopt the Anglo-Saxon tongue. Then 1066, William the Conqueror comes to Britain, conquers it, and adds a whole lot of French 
to the English language. And then I've skipped one thing, namely uh, a century before that, the Vikings moved to Britain, to Scotland mostly, in northern England, and added a whole lot of Norwegian and Swedish words to the English language. So what we have now is a mixture of northern German, French, Viking, Norwegian, huh. and a whole lot of Latin and Greek thrown into the mixture, as well as words taken from India and Holland and mm. the Amerindians. And as one famous American linguist said, English is our magnificent bastard tongue. And that's true. Like a mutt, like a dog with many different bloods in it. Exactly, yes. <laughs> but a lovely one. <laughs> the basic vocabulary is still very much German, even uh -huh. though the word very actually is French. But much of the slightly less literary or hmm. stylish uh, vocabulary is, uh, is, is Romance, is French. I always think it's interesting that a language will evolve to suit the needs of its people. You know, there's probably only one word for ice in the island of Crete. But in Norway, you'd have <laughs> different words for, for snow. In your country, the Netherlands, is there more than one way to say ice because of all of the fine ways you can skate on it? There are several words for ice, both ice and for holes in the ice. Oh, yeah. Because, of course, when, you, when you're skating, you want to avoid the holes and you want to know where they are. And it makes a lot of sense to know that they can be under bridges or in places where there are a hot water spring where it won't freeze over. So, yes, they do have words. But I'm, I want to question a bit your assumption that when people have a lot of dealings with a certain phenomenon, they will have a lot of words for it. It's, uh -huh. it's not necessarily true. Okay. When you compare Eskimo or Inuit words for snow with the English words for snow, there's really not much difference in numbers. I mean, the, the Inuit apparently, according to very reputable linguists, do not have all that many words for snow. But they can make sentences talking about snow, maybe with more detail than we do. Well, so that overcomes that misperception. Yes, there's actually a famous book, The Great Inuit uh, Snow Word Hoax, or something like that. Okay. Let's just finish very quickly. I'm going to say a language, and you've got a couple of lessons that I found really fun. If you say French, you call French, um, it has a mother... Mother complex. A mother complex. What did you mean by that? I mean by that that it has never separated itself really from, from Latin. It still wants to spell the words like Latin. It wants to draw on Latin for new vocabulary. Oh, so it's hanging on to its mother language. Okay, and Finnish, you say, is the easiest of all the languages to spell. Yeah, that, to spell, that's correct, because they really spell it the way you pronounce it. So you can do better in a spelling bee if you grew up in, uh, in Finland. Everybody's a winner there. <laughs> Everybody's a winner. In Iceland, uh, you say it's the language frozen in time. Correct, yes. Contemporary Icelandic is very much like the Norwegian of a thousand years ago. Obviously, it's not identical. It has new words for subway and iPad, but right. it is very similar to old Norwegian. That's a great example of how language helps us get a little insight into the many cultures of Europe. Gaston Doran, thank you very much, and best wishes with your book, Lingo. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Hey, put them together and what do you got? Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kaz Mora Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. The Rick Steves guidebooks are consistently the best-selling series of guides to Europe. That's because we lovingly update them in person and cut through all the superlatives to give you hard and smart opinions based on decades of experience. Find them at your favorite bookseller and at ricksteves.com.